I love that we live in a part of the world, part of the country where Easter comes in spring, you know, because we, we get the sensation and the full experience of, of life renewed, don't we? You know, we, uh, the grass is greening up, the, the flowers are out, the birds are out. We had a beautiful, beautiful sunrise for our service this morning, and it's just amazing that we get to enjoy that. So, but this morning, it's, it's Resurrection Sunday, right? The world calls these Resurrection Sunday, and our Savior has risen. And a special welcome to our guests and those who listen online. Uh, I realize this is one of those Sundays where people don't otherwise regularly attend church will gather. And it's, it's important that we do this. And I want to assure you, you're welcome here. You're welcome here. And we are glad that you have joined us to both celebrate and appreciate the wonderful gift of grace that was afforded us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you count yourself among those who find yourself here only a few times a year, I'll just tell you what the staff at my gym tells me. It's good to see you again. You should be here more often. It's good for you. And that's why we're here. <laughs> but I've titled this message, The Moment When Our Humanity Was Overcome by His Majesty. And this morning, we're going to look at some of the facets of our human existence and how Jesus Christ not only experienced them, just as we do, but also the message that the example of his life offers us. And if we look at just the past 12 months, a lot has happened in the world. This time last year, we had our very first online-only worship service because for three weeks, which was actually pretty short in the grand scheme of, of the world, we could not meet as a congregation like we are this morning. And there are still churches around that aren't able to do this. We are truly blessed. But shortly after that, you know, we had this global pandemic, you know, really blew up and there were enormous amounts of civil unrest. And, and we can't forget it was an election year. The effects and implications of all of these things are still being felt today as we gather. And I'd say that life is certainly unpredictable, right? We go into 2020 with such hope and just all this stuff happened. And it was Benjamin Franklin who said, nothing is certain except death and taxes, right? And I would like to think that there's more certainty to life than just death and taxes. But let me tell you about Jesus. He overcame death and he even recruited a tax collector as one of his devoted followers. And it's his eyewitness testimony we're going to be reading from this morning. But when I tell you that Jesus' majesty, his God-given authority and power overcame humanity, I'm saying that he overcame the human condition, now, the human condition, these are all the key events and stuff that just make up our lives, right? Birth, growth, emotions, aspirations, certainly conflicts, and immortality. And we can all agree that these are components of our human existence here on earth. So what is God's answer to these is taught and modeled by Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, when it comes to birth, I don't need to tell you the story of Jesus' birth. It's a, it's a well-known, well-celebrated narrative that most everyone can count, right? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The, world be the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then the words from Matthew, the tax collector. He says, what is conceived is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's what we celebrate. 
Now, although Jesus did not have any children of his own, he had a true love for them. Even the crowds of eager listeners prevented the young from seeing Jesus, right? Because there was just so many people around him at all times. And, and the disciples, even from time to time, would keep the young ones at arm's length so he wouldn't be disturbed. And Jesus said this. He said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. He added, truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom like a child will never enter it. And we as Christians cherish life and we understand the sanctity of life and we recognize our call to raise our children and influence the young lives around us towards a relationship with Jesus. Growth, right? We all go through this period of growth, some a little slower than others. I'm sorry for what I did, right? But listen to the story from Jesus' young life found in Luke 2, 39 through 52. He says, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. This is young Jesus. It says, then they began looking for him among the relatives and friends. See, he had, they'd gone to the town and they had headed back with their family. And honestly, it was, it was a while before they realized that Jesus wasn't with them. And so they headed back to town to look for him. So so they began looking around among their relatives and friends. They did not find him. They went back to Jerusalem to look for him. It says, after three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. This is a 12-year-old. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. See, he was in trouble for going MIA. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, from the example and teachings of Jesus, we get a lot of wisdom regarding our own personal and spiritual growth. From 1 Peter 2.2, 2, it says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. We talked about this for, for several weeks during the Lent season, that there are things that take up the space in our lives intended for God. The whole season of Lent is to prepare ourselves for this day so that the, the gift of the cross can be fully received. And when we, when we just fill ourselves with things like anger and frustration and lack of forgiveness, um, lack of trust in ourselves or in others, inability to love or be loved or even love ourselves, they take up space. And that's why this warning, he says, rid yourself of all of this stuff. He says, crave the pure stuff. He said, so you can grow up in your salvation. And the apostle Paul advises this. He says that we should move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundations of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Now, he's not saying that those are unimportant facts. He said, that's the basis. He said, true Christianity, true growing your faith starts with that and doesn't stop. It doesn't stop the minute you say, okay, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. We have to work and work because none of us have it figured out yet. We are continually try and try again to be more and more like him, removing these things from our lives that, that obstruct us. And one of my go-to verses during times of adversity can be found in James 1, 2 through 5. And you're welcome to share this with me. It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that it is a testing of your faith that produces perseverance. 
Well, that doesn't always make it feel better, but there's some good that comes out of this. It says, because you know the testing your faith produces perseverance. It says, let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, this is the kind of growth that comes from the adversity you face. So often we focus on the wrong thing. This is my problem. This is what I have to deal with. And sometimes we do this thing called try harder Christianity, right? If I just try harder, if I just try harder and I try harder, but what happens? We get discouraged, right? Some people say change is not possible. Any change is possible. It just might take the right tool and it definitely needs God, right? Try harder Christianity is dangerous because Satan loves to get in there and say, you're not doing it right. You're not good enough. But that's not the tool we're supposed to be using. So sometimes adversity isn't the focus in the adversity, but what comes on the backside of it. And it continues, as any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. You want to know why you're going through what you're going through? Ask God. Now, he may not tell you, and he may not, you may not like the answer he gives you, but like the scripture says, he can use all things for his good purpose. Some of the things in my life, actually, let me say it this way. Some of the best things in my life are the result of things that I spent quite a bit of time praying against in the past. But God has moved these pieces around. Sometimes I wasn't even paying attention. You know, all these things just flipped together. I, I joked about, you know, my, my pathway to this church started with a donut, but that was during a period of, of stuff in my life that I was praying against, but God used it for his good purpose. So even the disciples, these men who knew Jesus well and traveled with him during the period of his teaching, and they witnessed in person these miracles. They said to him, they said, Lord, increase our faith. Let me give you a warning about prayers like that. I call these risky prayers. Do you remember me talking about risky prayers? Things like, Lord, help me learn patience. What does he do? He puts you in a traffic jam, right? <laughs> Lord, stretch my faith. What's he going to do? He's going to put you in a position where you're going to have to rely on him a little harder. That's what he does. Lord, help me to, to empathize with so-and-so. Well, the only way to do that is to be in that position sometimes. These are risky prayers, but God loves them. He delights because he's saying, you know, fling your faith out there a little farther, okay? I'll meet you there. But what about this human condition of emotion? What does all that entail? I don't know about you, but when I picture Jesus, I just think of this calm, peaceful, gentle man, right? Soft-spoken, yet confident and deliberate when he speaks. So it, it doesn't surprise me to hear about his compassion from Matthew 9, 36. He, he'd see crowds and he said he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. From the book of John 8, you know, he, he went to the temple court and people were gathered around him and he sat down to teach and and the teacher of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Maybe you know the story. And, and brought her there. And they made her stand before the group and said, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? And they're trying to trap him, right? But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, the Bible never says what he wrote. But there's this beautiful image of him writing something in, in, in the ground. And he stands up and he says, Let any of you who is without sin, throw the first stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote something on the ground. We don't know what that is. But this, those who began go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, No one, sir. And he says, Neither do I. 
Now go now and leave your life of sin. Now we can speculate all we want. Did he write something like, I know your sin and drew an arrow to someone? Or did, did he just, who knows what he wrote? But I'd love to think that Jesus bends down and writes those kinds of messages to us too, right? And then maybe it was, for her, it was the word of forgiveness. And that's what she needed. She wasn't denying what she'd done wrong. We're never to deny what we do wrong. We're just to own it and repent for it. In Mark 8, we find the story where Jesus feeds the 4,000. A lot of remember this from, from Bible study or VBS or whatever. And, and this wasn't Jesus showing off his power saying, watch what I do with a couple loaves and a few fish. It says, during those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Compassion. Even at the cross, at the, at the precipice of his own death, he, he saw the sadness on the faces of those around him. And this is what he said, John 19, 25 to 27. He says, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home in horrible, agonizing pain, shame, beaten, just on the about to die. And he's worried about the people around them and who's going to take care of mom and, and my friends. Jesus felt compassion. That shouldn't surprise us. But he also felt great joy. Luke 10, 21. It says, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Can you imagine Jesus with excitement? Like, they get it. Joy. He even says that to his disciples. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And he says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. God delights when we do these things that pleases him. And I'd like to think that Jesus is, even laughs. I'll tell you when he laughs is when I try to tell him my plans for my life. That's probably when he really laughs. But if when you walk out of the store, going back to the fellowship hall, you'll see a picture in the back of the room. It's of Jesus laughing, literally. I don't know the story behind it, but I love that picture. Because like, here's this calm person. But you have to remember, he was a human. He probably laughed at silly things. He probably, as a young child, I mean, his dad was a carpenter. He probably fell and skinned his knee and smashed his finger with a, with a hammer and all these things. He was human. He was human. And as a human, he felt sorrow. I mean, there's a story in Luke where he approached Jerusalem and he was riding in the city and he wept over Jerusalem. He was so downhearted about what was going on there. And even the, the loss of, of the people he loved, you know, we know the story of, of Mary and Martha and, and their friend Lazarus. The Bible says he loved them. But it said when Jesus saw her weeping at the death of her brother and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Wherever you laid him, he asked, come and see, Lord, they replied. And simple says two words, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved them. Jesus laughs with you. He delights in you. He weeps with you. But would it surprise you to say that Jesus felt anger? Matthew 23, 33, Jesus' own words. He says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? And he's, he's condemning the, the, the Pharisees, the, the religious elite, the teachers of the time, and, and how they are disgracing the teachings of, of the Lord, how they are misrepresenting um, the law, and how they're using the temple, the sacred place, 
In fact, it goes on in John 2 to say, in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Okay, he said, this is my father's house. This isn't a place of business, and we don't, this is not what we do here. So listen to this, he said, he made a whip out of cords. I drove all of the, the money changers and overturned the tables. I'm sorry, he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. To those who sold dove, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Can you imagine an angry Jesus Christ chasing after you with a whip? He gets angry. He also got angry in Mark 3, 2, 6. He says Jesus was in the synagogue and he was teaching. And, and a man came up in front of him with a shriveled hand. It says, Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, he said, stand up in front of everyone. And Jesus asked him, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? It's because they were asking, they were talking about whether it's okay to heal on the Sabbath. And, and Jesus said, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed and stubborn hearts. And he said to them, and stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and the hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This was infuriating to them that Jesus would come in here where they're the religious elite. And here's this man, this gentle man who came in here and is performing miracles on all days, the holy day. Do you see how, how he gets so frustrated? The day is, is made to be holy for this kind of work. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't, you don't, the day doesn't belong to you. One thing that Jesus did master we could all learn from was lack of worry. Anybody else struggle with worry sometimes? Okay. I don't see any hands, but I can see it in your face. Your word, I'm going to call you out. Um, I don't know if you consider worry an emotion, but it can certainly lead to a lot of emotions and certainly some emotional responses. And it's not that he doesn't. He wasn't subject to the busyness of life. In fact, he went from place to place teaching. He was surrounded by crowds. He often had to sneak away for, for peace. And he often had to make arrangements on the fly for food and, and a place to say all that. You'll, you'll read time after time in scripture. He had to go send someone to find a room for them to stay, a place for them to eat. Yet he never worried about these things. And in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, we hear these familiar words. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothes. And he gives examples of, of birds of the air that they don't store stuff, but God takes care of them. And he says, how much more valuable are you to the father than these birds? And he adds this one important line. And remember this, can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? To the contrary, it'll take it away. Your body wasn't created to deal with stress and worry. You swallow that stuff down, and that's why they make a million dollars on that kind of medication. It's not good for you. Jesus had that figure out not to worry. That doesn't mean don't be a good steward of the things you're supposed to be responsible for. You can't just wait around for the miracles to happen. But he's saying, do the right thing. Keep your eyes on God. It says, you know, this is where he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be given to you as well. And the greatest of these, right? Love. 
love. Jesus' new commandment giving the Last Supper was to serve and to love one another. And if you need a recollection, a reminder of that, on the podcast there was a, a Maundy Thursday recording, which was the Last Supper. And all that entailed, Jesus you know, having the communion, that uh, we celebrate the communion, also washing of the feet. In several of the conversations, he was warning his disciples that he would be leaving them soon. And all that that came about. And then on Good Friday, it's a story of the trial and the, the, basically the murder that happened. So I want to encourage you to tune into those. But in 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11, he described this way. He says, above all other, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Okay? This is the kind of love that God has for you, Jesus has for you, that we should have for others. And don't forget to have this for yourself. Is there a tougher critic on yourself than you sometimes? There isn't. Love yourself. It covers a multitude and offers hospitality to one another without grumbling. It says, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various form. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. And so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. You may not realize this, but the things you do might be an answered prayer for someone else. I can't tell you how many examples from this room. Someone has done something for me or my family that has been an answered prayer. Just out of the kindness of their own heart. Okay? So when, during the offering time when I was saying, think about what it is God calling you to do, whether it's a financial gift, which certainly can be a blessing, but maybe you're to, to, to help someone, to serve someone. But when it comes to emotions, I think nothing captures it better than the Apostle Paul when he was talking about the fruit of the Spirit. This reminds me of Galatians 5, to 23. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, this is the Spirit that Jesus sent, his helper, when, when he departed earth. He said, I'm going to the Father and have him send an advocate. And Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, right? We're doing pretty good so far, aren't we? And then that last one, right? What is it? Self-control. Anybody do well till we get to self-control? Yeah. Why is this so important? Because listen to what, what James wrote. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. This is, again, is that stuff that takes up room in your heart. How can you have Jesus in your heart and the, the Holy Spirit in your life if you've got it filled with this other stuff? And so many of these things that we think are important that, that don't quite feel fulfilling is because there is a God-sized, God-shaped hole in your life. He made it there on purpose. This isn't a negative, this isn't a, 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 an omission. It's not an error. It's made to be filled by him. And when you fill it with stuff, possessions and, and notoriety and titles, it may fill up that space, but it doesn't fit right, right? And you're going to spend a lot of time not being as happy as God wants you to be. Ouch. Aspiration, another human condition. What did the son God aspire to do? Well, we often wonder our purposes, and, and God has one for you, I promise you. But Jesus was clearly spelled out in John 3.16, or 17. We often read John 3.16, but if you read it in 17, 
it says, it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Again, the apostle Paul elaborates on this. He says, but when the set time had come, had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, right? To redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption of sonship. Now, if you ever read in the Bible, the little letters and numbers and what they mean, the word sonship is a Greek word, the same as adoption to sonship. And this means it's a full legal standing, okay? In, in Roman culture, which is the prevalent culture of that time, in Roman culture, if you were the adopted son, you had full rights, full heir as if you were that child. Jesus came so that you would have full adopted sonship or daughtership to be his child. No questions asked. He chose you. Chose you. And it's hard to imagine that Jesus aspired to give up his holy life for us, a bunch of sinners. But that is exactly what he did. And Paul reminds us of this. And he says, This is your own aspiration, should be this. He says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Sometimes we have to go through things we don't want to go through for the end, right? Jesus prayed in that garden and he said, Lord, take this cup from me, right? He knew what was about to happen. One of his most trusted friends was going to betray him. He was going to be brutally, brutally um, punished, right? And if you read the, actually the movie, The Passion of the Christ captures it pretty graphically of what was done, the lead balls, the pieces of bone that literally still tear flesh away and to put a crown of thorns and to shame him and to nail him, okay, hands and feet. Yeah, it's, but he, he endured that. He said, Lord, take this from me. But he says, but your will, not mine. Your will, not mine. And that is so hard for us to do sometimes. But here's what's cool. Jesus' divine power has given you everything you need for a godly life. He has. You are fully equipped, and we studied this about a month ago. You are fully equipped for the purpose God has for you, whether it be in, in some sort of mission or it's just in, in God's mission. And he has created a process. He has equipped you for that perfectly. Perfectly. So if you feel like you're not doing what you need to be doing, and I'm not saying that you need to go to a full-time life of, of ministry or, or be a mission across the world. Sometimes your mission starts right here. There are people in this room that are hurting. There are people in this room that, have, that are healing. Okay? Mission doesn't start when you leave this room. There's a lot of those signs that say, you know, you're entering the mission field. Mission field starts right here. You are at ground zero for God's work. It starts right here. And the last thing before death, of course, is conflict. Did Jesus experience conflict? You better believe it. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by mankind. Absolutely he was. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He goes on, these familiar words, his, he was pierced for our transgressions. Who was crushed for our iniquities and punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned on our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was led like a lamb to slaughter and a sheep before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Read about the trial. He said very little. He denied nothing. You know, you say you're the, the savior. You say the son of God, I am who you say I am. Here's what's good. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Friends, it is possible. You can go through the facets of life, the conflicts, the emotions, all of the stuff, the growth, the, the, the setbacks, the joys successfully because Jesus said it could be done. And where you lack, he makes up the difference with grace. Last, of course, mortality. That's why we're here this morning, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Just want to read a couple of verses from, from that day. John 19, 28 through 30 says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so the scripture would be filled, fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine and vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And I know you guys who attend regularly know what I said, what I'm going to say here. But it is finished. The word is tetelestai. It is an active, perfect verb. It doesn't mean once and done. It doesn't mean once and forever. It means once and ongoing. It's almost hard to describe because there's not a word in the English language that does this word justice. He died on the cross. He came back to life not just for the people that were around him at that time, but for you and your children and your grandchildren, every generation before and coming that accepts him. He did it for that. It is finished, ongoing, to tell us that. Some of the centurions that were there, you know, when he died, all the things that happened, the temple curtain tore and, and the, the rocks shook and, and split and tombs broke open. And the centurions were there, they were terrified, and they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. You know, sometimes it takes this amazing thing for you to go, okay, God, I get it. Okay, my prayer is that it doesn't take something like that for you to go, okay, God, I get it, right? He'll deliver us when we're at the end of our rope, at the very end of ourselves. You know, you could be at your 11th hour like the, 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 the criminal hanging next to him who said, Jesus, will you remember me in heaven? And he says, I promise you, you will be with me in paradise, okay? We have no idea. The people that have passed before us, what their relationship with God or Jesus was, and if they were, if they turned their, their, their eyes towards him at the last minute, grace can cover a multitude of things, and it's amazing, and it's never too late. But why waste any moment between now and then? Why not accept him now? Why not turn to him now? So that for next period of time, as long as you're here on this earth, which is temporary, as long as you're here, you enjoy these blessings of knowing him and having him in your life. So where is hope in our own mortality? It's in the promise that God keeps. Remember John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall what? Have eternal life. You know, I am the resurrection of the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. This is, this is Jesus talking to Martha about Lazarus. Remember, he wept 
But he says, I am the resurrection. He will not die. You know, if I had to really sum it up about all this stuff, all this humanity, all this world has in Jesus, I just put it up in a single slide. It would be a scoreboard, right? It would be the world zero and Jesus one. That's all it takes to win. And it's not even just the world. It's like Satan's all-star team of junk, right? All the discouragement and negative self-talk and, and dissension and all this horrible stuff. It doesn't matter. Jesus overcame it. All we can do is be distracted by it, stumble over it. It's already been won. All we have to do is claim that victory. In that moment that Jesus rose from the grave, humanity was overcome by his majesty then and forever. And that same power lives within you when you repent, when you invite the Holy Spirit to guide your life and you dedicate your life to Jesus' ministry. It doesn't make it easy, but it makes it very simple. God, I am so sorry for what I've done. Please forgive me. And we may have the same conversation tomorrow because I'm, I'm, I'm human. And you'll say, okay, okay. I want to encourage you. If you have questions about what God has called you to do, if you have questions about what this God-shaped space in your life looks like or feels like, if you have any questions about any stuff, I want you to reach out to someone and ask. Someone you trust. Or talk to me. Hopefully you can trust me. But oh, don't sit silent. Okay? This world is, in our life is too important and more important than that is your soul. So I want to invite you to, to think about that. And I wanted to watch one more video before we uh, take in communion. It's the power of that moment that makes Christmas more than just a holiday of gift giving, more than just a famous person's birthday. It is what puts the power in the gift of Christmas. If it weren't for Easter, there would be nothing to celebrate at Christmas. And we take this moment now to, to remember some of the, the moments of Jesus' life. In fact, that last week, it was Monday, Thursday, when he was in the upper room with the disciples. And when they had finished the meal, he, he gave thanks and he took the loaf of bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Of course, it represents the body which had to be broken on the cross. And likewise, he gave thanks and he poured the wine and he said, this is my blood given for you. It's the blood of the new covenant. Now, Jesus didn't come to, to do away with any of the old laws. There's still the that shot not. You should not kill. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't commit adultery. But he says, now there's a new covenant. He says, all of that stuff is covered through my, my death, my resurrection. This is the new covenant. And he says, as often as you take this bread and drink this wine, do so in remembrance of me. In front of you, you should find some COVID-friendly communion packets. Some of them are a little tougher to, to open, but if you'll pull back the top, there's a little wafer which represents the body. And if you open the cup, there's grape juice for the blood. And, and I'm just going to play another video as you just take a moment and reflect on the wonderful sacrifice. Father God, you have given us resurrection power. You have given us the power of your name. You have given us the power and authority to pray in your son's name. 
Lord, you tell us that anything that we have done, whether it's a, we just slightly get off path or we completely turn away from you, you say, turn back towards me, ask for my help, ask for forgiveness, and it is yours. What a loving and comforting message it is. Lord, we stand on that promise. And this day, Easter Sunday, as we celebrate the resurrection power, let it never lose its power impact over our lives. We thank you for who you are and what you mean to us. Amen.